If Murray had supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. Yeah, there you go. Sending out good vibes. Majority of us come from foster care and orphanages and off the street and homeless shelters. Yeah, it was a lot of kids that came in out of there, out the same from the same background that I came from. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grand America Show, one of our one a day episode specials. Celebrate our six year anniversary week, and uh, this one here is going to be Leon Walker talking about child abuse and his time in the Navy and substance abuse. And, and then it's a, it's a bit of a wild one. It's a wild card. Yeah. I missed that one. Yeah. Actually. You weren't here for this one. Graham, I skipped the podcast Dunlops here today. He was busy playing hacky. Hockey. hockey. Actually, it was an important game. It was the final. Was I think we hockey. won. I think we won that night. I think we won the whole thing that night. You were hosting the trophy while I was hosting the podcast. Yeah. Otherwise I wouldn't, I would have missed hockey for that, you know, for this, unless it's the final game. Then you got to go. Yeah. Then and you got, didn't you get a couple of assists? Oh, yeah. I always yeah, get a couple, couple of assists, yeah. couple goals. Yeah. You're the most valuable player of the final game? Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. Did I did I show you the picture with the hat and all that and the little. Wearing your little was mammoth, that the night? Your yeah. mammoth jersey? Yeah. That might have been that night. Good for you. Go get him. <laughs> go get him. So thanks for, uh, you know. Hey, anytime. Do you have a little bio? You said you wanted to do more of that? I, well, you, no. I wasn't here today. That day. For this, that day. You're here today. Yeah. That was a good chat. Leon was fun. It was a good sport. Uh, I forget which publicist asked us to have him on, so we had him on. Uh, I didn't really know any background on him, but we had a great chat. Adam Loyal came and helped out, right sat on. in. Right uh, we'll see what you guys think about it. I'm sure you'll let us know. You always do. You like it. And... uh yeah, this is the first in our series of shows. We're releasing one every day this week to celebrate the anniversary of the show. America.ca slash support. If you could find it in your heart, to you're finding some value from the show, and you can head over there and hit us up with some value back. Because it really in the form helps. Of the monthly. Because it really helps. And we can't do it without you. And we really appreciate everybody's support. I mean, really. It's amazing. The can't do it without fantastic. you. Fantastic, yeah. That's right. So sorry. Keep going. I think that's all I got. Support the show, gramerica.ca slash support. I'm not going to go to the socials or anything during these shows. We're going to keep them probably short and sweet because we don't have a ton of content to do five intros Godzilla, in a week. We're yeah? not used to that. No. That's pretty Is it out? Yeah. It's pretty cool. Is it Lots loaded of... with propaganda? Yeah, pretty much. How yeah. do you know? I could Did just you hear guess. About it? No. Like, like she's looking at her emails. There's a climate change email there, which is interesting. And then... You know, humans are the virus, right? So the one main character is trying to, like, <clears throat> let all the monsters... Oh, should I... Spoilers. Spoilers for the... Yeah, easy. You probably shouldn't spoil it yet. But, Let's give it a couple weeks. But, you know, anyways, humans are virus. Right? Humans are the virus, you know. The, it's like the sixth extinction thing. And then, of course, there's, like, big black, big black triangles in there. And 
undersea bases and Atlantis and ancient myths, Hollow Earth, Antarctica. I mean, it was fuck. It was full of like conspiracies. Project yeah. Monarch. The whole thing was called Project Monarch, of course. I mean, it's incredible the way these things are just laced with like real conspiracies. Well, maybe I'll have to watch it. Some guy was like, "It's the vortex to the inner Earth." I mean, it's just fantastic. You know what I realized is we forgot to do the quotes on the anniversary show. Oh damn, we did too. Dun, dun, I'll, da, da. I'll, look, I'll look up a couple quotes. You'll get some for time, this yeah. one. Um, oh yeah, the other thing we said we we're going to do is run down our, the road trip. Oh yeah. So we'll start with Montana. What do you think of Montana? Oh, I love Montana. I love the drive from. Uh, Had you been there before? Yeah, well, once. Once I think only once, but I like to drive from Great Falls to Helena through that mountain hilly yeah. pass, kind of. And yeah, Ooh, I went the back way when I went there. So I went from because I had to go run into a friend of the show, Brandon in yep. Montana, gave me a little care package that helped get helped us get through the prohibition states. I think it helped the whole CAC eventually, it did. Yeah, that's where it all ended up. And then I brought his book there for Randall, signed for him, and brought a bottle of whiskey for Randall. Um, so anyway, we took the back way cause we had stayed in spray cause we left here so late Wednesday night. I only just made it over the border and stayed. And then we took the back way and, uh, it was beautiful. So it took it, you had bypassed great falls and it took like an extra 20 minutes. I went totally the opposite way through the mountains. Well, that's the way I told you to go. Wasn't it? No, that's the or way. The other, that's, you went you, west of Great Falls or east yeah, of Great Falls? Yeah, I went west of yeah, Great no, Falls, but not till you. after Sprague. You were talking about crossing the border in a different place. Oh, right, okay. I yeah, still yeah. crossed the border at uh, Sweetgrass. Okay. And All then right. I kept through there. And then I was out running the dog around through the grass, and I was walking back to the sign and say, watch out, rattlesnakes. Don't really? go in the grass. Wow. Yeah. I didn't see, I actually, I did see one. I don't know if it was a rattlesnake or not, but in Colorado or I seen a dead snake on the road. That was my own experience with the snakes. But I thought Montana was great. Bozeman was, was pretty cool. I saw a couple snake brothers. The people in Helena were fantastic. Oh, that's what I wanted to say. The people all the way down to the States, through Montana, Utah, um, Idaho, and Colorado. I mean, fantastic. The nicest people, like... Hi, how you doing? All the time, like just we were in super Helena. night. The customer service and the just help nice people were was fantastic. We stopped in Helena just to go like to go like get some stuff for lunch and stuff like that. And you're in the grocery store, and it's me and Lisa and two kids. So we just start building stuff up, right? You go from thinking you're getting a couple of things to your hands are kind of full because the kids don't want to carry anything. But he just shows up with a shopping cart. He's like, "Hey, man, it looks like you guys use a cart. You want this cart?" Like yeah, man, thanks. And then uh, what's funny is later in the sh in the trip down in Colorado, I just finished emptying out my cart, and some guy just comes by with his cart. He's like, oh, "I'll take that for you, man." I just can, like that shit never happens in Canada. Yeah, it never happens. People say Canadians are nice. I don't know. I know maybe it's because uh, we look like fucking patsies, and they're just nice. Patsies. But us, like Canadians, do we have a look to us when we're down there? I maybe. don't know. Anyway, I I agree with how nice people are everywhere yeah. I go down there. I find, you know, people say Amer the stigma is that Americans are rude and Canadians are polite. I definitely don't I think that it's got I go something to, to do. I think it's got something to do with those states specifically. I mean, honestly, it's the mid But it was the same thing in like Washington, Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. Mind you, it could be that I'm always in small towns. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. You know, I'm never stopping and I'm, I'm bypassing LA, cities. LA. I mean, it is difficult in the 
I didn't cities. stop in Salt Lake City even, you know what I mean? Like, did you stay right in Salt Lake City? No. I wonder if it'd be different if you went right into the city, if it'd be more like Calgary eyes. Maybe, probably. Yeah, I thought Montana was great. I'd like to go back. I'm going to go back again soon, I think. Go visit Brandon, maybe do some hiking, check out some dolmens with him. That'd be great. Realize how close he is. You know, he's just right there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Marie and I decided to go to the nature a little bit more as well. Like, just seeing all that stuff. and The drive down there and and back was fucking phenomenal. Yeah. But even we have the Rockies right next to us, too. Like, just last summer, I didn't even get there. Like, we got to get out to nature more. I get into these Rockies, okay. But there's something about those U.S. highways. Amazing. Oh, the 80 80 miles an hour speed limit helps. That helps. I mean, Yellowstone's only nine hours away. You're in Bozeman in eight hours if you go for it. You can be a Yellowstone in 10. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a quote there for us? I, I, I haven't played a jingle in a Well, while. I got a pharmaceutical quote here. I mean, a I mean, pharmaceutical I just, quote? I just, pulled Is this profound, I just pulled it up. The so. fucking profound pharmaceutical quote of the week? Let's just do the, go with this one. Yeah. Going deep. It's a profound pharmaceutical UFO quote of the week. So, you want to turn that down so I can read it? What's the so while our society seemingly has accepted cancer as an inevitable part of modern life, pharmaceutical companies are laughing their way to the bank. In 2014, the revenues for cancer treatments passed the 100 billion mark, and they are expected to rise to 147 billion in the coming two years. That's from Amy Goodrich, a journalist. Wow, that's a lot. No kidding. 147 billion. That's too much. Too much. Get on the CBD, people. Gonna pile through the quotes here. Yeah, I'll uh, <laughs> whoops, I spilt the coins. Nice, they're a table decoration now. We can't even begin to explain how consciousness, how sensation arises out of electric chemistry. I like that one. That's from Henry Marsh, a neurosurgeon. Thanks, Henry. Thanks, you guys, for listening. Thanks for listening for six years, 350 episodes. This will be number 351. Like I said, we're going to keep these short and sweet because we are going to release five shows in a row here as a thank you all for listening and supporting us over the years. That being said, enjoy the chat with Leon Walker.
Okay, in Grime America tonight, we got a special one. We got no Graham, so uh, that's too bad. I'm sure you guys will be kind of sooky about that. But we got Adam sitting in, friend of the show, fellow Grime American. And we're excited because we got Leon R. Walker here to join us. Uh, he just wrote the book Broken, The Survival Instincts of a Child, which is kind of his debut memoir. And uh, Le- Leon's an advocate, a motivational speaker, and he's taking his message of hope and survival to the, to our podcast. And uh, as a survivor of numerous childhood traumas, including child molestation, sex addiction, and domestic violence, Leon is sharing stories from his violent upbringing to motivate and inspire today's at-risk use. youth. April is both Child Abuse Prevention Month and Sexual Assault Awareness Month, so we're happy to have Leon here. Uh, Julia Brown over at the publishing was happy enough to send us your book and we're thrilled to have you here. Leon, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Appreciate it. You guys happy to be here. A lot of audio gremlins visiting us to get started here tonight, but finally we can get going. Um, so maybe can you, can you just sort of give us a rundown of, I, I, I'm pretty sure most of our, most of our audience is uh, is probably not going to have, have heard of you quite yet, so maybe we can kind of give a rundown of of uh, who you are and how you got here. And I know I, most of our audience is probably, um, the ones that don't have kids are probably, you know, just kind of out of teenagehood. So, I mean, a, a lot of this, this is going to be a really good, great message for our listeners. Okay. Yeah, sure. You know, I'm originally from East Cleveland, Ohio. Um, <clears throat> dealt with a lot. Mm-hmm. Get into that. But, um I didn't know what I wanted to do after high school. I had failed the test to take the, for the military. I failed it four times. And on the fifth time, I did pass the test. So I decided to join the Navy. I wind up serving 32 years. I've been all over the world. Uh, I've sailed the seas, the oceans. I've been on 11 deployments. I've been to the Persian Gulf numerous occasions, uh, conflicts throughout the year. I was in the Persian Gulf when the USS Stark, you guys get a chance, look it up, USS Stark was bombed by two missiles in 1987. And I'll talk about that later on uh, in my third book coming up, my second book coming up out this fall. But um, been on five ships, at 15 years at sea. My job in the Navy was a navigator for about 21 years. Uh, and after that, I became an executive level leader. I have three kids, three guy kids, and I am divorced. I am now a motivational speaker, like you mentioned, and an author. I love people, I love helping people, I love talking, I love inspiring people. I am 53 years old, 53 years young. I, I run often. I just started getting back into running. I ran one marathon a few years ago. I'm about to run another marathon in May. So if there's something that you want to do in life, always push yourself. Don't sit back and be comfortable. I tell you that for those listeners out there, get out of your comfort zone. Make sure, make yourself uncomfortable. For me, fortunately, it's kind of weird, weird to say, but I was fortunate enough to be uncomfortable as a kid, and I'm remaining that uncomfortable. So, so it, it helped me grow and helped me become a stronger person, both physically and mentally. That's interesting, because I mean, a lot of people, I, I'd imagine there's a lot of people that share your same story that uh, kind of take the other road. Yeah, they, yeah, they do. They go the other way. Uh, some people never overcome the obstacles that they run into as a child. And some people repeat those obstacles as a child, as an adult. They hurt others. They hurt themselves. People wind up in jail. People wind up dead. And you're right. It, it, some people never never get a chance to right themselves. And that was my main focus, to right all, not only my wrongs, but the, the wrongs that what they had, as far as what they have done to me, made me the person that I, that I was slowly becoming. 
So yeah, you're right about that, Darren. What kind of was there a was there a defining moment that you can look back on? Like you're kind of you know you're a kid, you're going through all this terrible stuff. Was there like is there like can you look back on one moment that it just sort of you were like well you know like was did you kind of come out of that experience as wanting to always did you always have this drive and this vision or was it something that that sort of kicked in at some point? Okay, so what happened was. And I like to tell his listeners, do it now, but study your parents. We go through life just knowing our parents. We go through life just loving our parents. We go through life just being around our parents. But there's not really a, a time where we study our parents. My breakthrough came uh, a couple of times. Uh, aside from being molested and, and raped and being addicted to porn early on, um, my breakthrough came when... I first learned, I was always called dumb, stupid, and slow. I was told that you'd never be anything. Even by my senior counsel, I was told, you'd never, you never pass the test to get in the Navy. You'd never get into the Navy. You'd never get into the military. But my breakthrough came, um, Ali, it was a weird time when, after I got molested, I needed an outlet. So my parents were going through hell. My parents were fighting, arguing, beating each other. I had to you know, witness my mother get her face smashed in, her teeth knocked out. So... I was looking for outlets. I was looking for somebody to help me through this pain and this agony. But what happened was we had a dog that, that would have puppies often. And I was kind of like terrified. I didn't know what to do to help her have the puppies. So one night I went out there, it's probably two in the morning to help her with her puppies, help her deliver her puppies. And that became comforting to me. Aside from everything, all the hell I was going through in the house, that became something that I'm like, wow, I'm not dumb. I'm not stupid. So I helped my dog deliver her puppies and one little she had 13 and it was like she had become accustomed to me coming out there to help her deliver the puppies. It was kind of weird that I would know around the time my dog was, was going and was, you know, delivery and I would help my dog deliver the puppies often. And, and this was, this was something that really helped me out. Uh, aside from delivering puppies, my, you know, I, I became, I became um, really entrenched in, and having loving animals and, and pets except, you know, reptiles except snakes. But we had frogs, we had hamsters, we had gerbils. So animals became an outlet for me. Animals became a way for me to think that, hey, I can I can be somebody. I can, you know, I'm not dumb. I'm not stupid. You know, somebody does love me. Aside from my parents and my family, I felt like my animals love me too. You know, and I know a lot of people out there feel that way. That's why they turn to snakes. That's why they turn to frogs or reptiles or dogs. I had the same thing. Now, there was another breakthrough. That was the first breakthrough to get me through the agony and, and, and the pain that I was going through from being raped um, by putting my, pouring myself into animals. Another breakthrough came when my mother had a friend that uh, after my parents got divorced, he, my father had to move out. And so his name was, I called him Chad, Chaz in the book. He was gay. And this is well, one thing that helped, helped me understand uh, not only myself, but people. People are people. You don't judge people. You don't look down on people. And with Chaz being gay, I had never, he was the first gay person that we had met. And so <clears throat> he gave me, he was my first mentor. And that's what I talk about in my book, Broken. Uh, Chaz taught me about life. Mm -hmm. He made me understand that things would be okay. He made me understand that he talked about racism. He talked about loving other people and then liking people, not because of the color of their skin, because but because of who, who they were. So this was a defining moment in my life. So I was in the sixth grade and he helped me grow into being a young man by understanding life. Um, I had a lot of uh, aggression. I had a lot of bad thoughts. I had a lot of evil ways. 
And at the same time, while I'm growing, you know, coming from being being molested, being raped, and being fondled by my uncle, Chad helped me get rid of a lot of aggression. What he did, I, I would talk to him, which made it easy for me to relate to adults at such a young age. I told him what I, what I was feeling. I'm like, I'm feeling this urge to have to watch porn because I become addicted to porn too. I'm feeling this urge to watch porn, and uh, we don't have porn. I know it's wrong, but I want to do it. I wanted. I, I had to find a way to release. Well, even though Chad was gay, he never touched me. He he never touched me at all. But he told me he he's the one. Sadly, maybe and fortunately, unfortunately, but he taught me masturbation, and that was. It's kind of weird to say that that was a turning point for me, but it was because it took my mind off of being raped. It took my mind off of being molested. It took my mind off of wanting to watch porn all the time because in a weird way, I got into myself. In a weird way, I didn't want to get into the young girls that was in my neighborhood, you know, because uh, being raped by an older person made me like older women. So the young girls in my neighborhood couldn't offer me anything. And this is what I experienced at eight, nine years old. So I was a young, angry, um, hurt, evil, devilish little boy. But I had a couple of turning points. And then another one was um, my senior year in high school, my back was up against the wall. I had failed the ASVAB. ASVAB is this armed services vocational aptitude and battery test that you take to get into the military. You need a minimum of a 31 to get in. The max score you get is a 99. I, I, I'm just, a, I'm a slow learner. I've always been a slow learner. And I had, I, I had to find out a way to pass this test because my back was up, up against the wall. Aside from my senior counselor telling me, you never pass a test, you know, you never make it to the military, that hurt me. But the thing is, I had to finally dig down deep in my soul and, and, and find out who am I? What can I do? What, what, what chance do I have in life? Nobody else was giving me a chance, so I had to give myself a chance. And that's when it all turned around when I said, you know what? I'm not dumb. I'm not stupid. I had to start believing what I was telling myself instead of believing what other people were telling me. So I studied, I buckled down, I studied my butt off for this test. The first time I took it, I got a six. The second time I took it, I got an 11. I got a 19. And the fourth time I took it, I got a 30. <clears throat> my fifth time was a major turning point in my life because after that time, had I not passed it, I wouldn't have been able to take the test again for another year. Now, being in the inner city, you don't have many things to look forward to. You have drugs, you have prostitution, you're hanging out on the streets, you have uh, truancy, foster care, orphanages, <clears throat> and those were things that I did not want in my life. So I finally had to apply myself and take this test one last time, and the last time that I took it, I scored a 31, which I got the minimum to get into the military. And that was a major, I had, of course, I had a lot of, a lot of turning points after I got in the Navy, but that was the most made that was a major turning point in my life. That was the most important and the most influential influential turning point in my life when I was able to pass that test by one point and join the Navy. How old now are you? when you're joining I'm sorry. Sorry, just how I how old were you? I was so I started taking tests at 16 and I kept failing it, kept failing it. 17, I kept failing it. And then when I finally did take it, I was 17. June, the summer of June of 1983, I finally passed the test. So I was 17 when I finally passed it. And I shipped off to boot camp November 21st of 1983. I turned 18 a month before I shipped off. Was your reasoning for, for going and signing up for the ASVAB to go into the military as a 
a self-discovery or trying to continue that that fixing process? So it was a little bit of it was a, actually it was both. Um, self-discovery came when I said, you know what? I saw my uncles in the army. They talk about the army. My father talked about the army. And that made me feel like, you know what? I want to be a man like them. I wanted, I really wanted to go fight for this country. I was a very patriotic young man. <clears throat> as odd as it may seem, you know, you, you don't find many kids 8, 19 years old that are patriotic. But, however, I guess the, the, the trials and tribulations I was going through so early on made me think like an older person. It made me want to get out and be somebody, aside from being called dumb and stupid and being told I never mounted anything. I wanted to become a military man. I wanted to impress my uncles. I wanted to impress my father. And so joining the military was a way for me to grow up quick. I knew I could become a man. I knew that they would hold me accountable. And I, I knew I would, I, other things I wanted to do, I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to get away from Cleveland. I wasn't suited for college at all. I was afraid of exams. I was afraid of tests. <clears throat> so the SAT, it wasn't a question of me taking the SAT. I wasn't going to take it. I avoided taking the SAT. So I knew then I'm not going to college. So and the and, and only, only other way I had to take the test to get in somewhere was the military. So the military was a great way for me to prove to my uncles and my father that I could be somebody. I could be a man and I could be a, <clears throat> I could be very patriotic and fight for this country, which is what I wanted to do. Aside from that, getting away from my demons, yeah, it took me away. But you got to remember, when you join the military at such a young age, you don't get carded overseas when you go into the bars. You don't get carded. When you when you go into the clubs, because you as a ship, we pulled in, we had 300 men on that ship, you know, with a pockets full of money. They're not going to card you. So I was introduced to the biggest party in the world. I'm talking about alcohol, drugs, women, violence. So I was reliving everything that I went through as a child. I wasn't molesting or raping people. No, but I was reliving the, the porn, the, the, the older women the excessive sex, the big parties, the alcohol, you know, being being devilish, being evil, you know, because you meet people from all walks of life and you learn you learn from people from all walks of life. I was 18 years old when I first learned about Wiccan. You know, I was 18 years old when I first learned. I had friends in the Navy that knew about witchcraft. That blew me away. These guys are 18 and 19 years old doing witchcraft in the Navy. People say, you know, you're in the, in the Navy, you're we're there. We're here to protect you all. That's what we do in the military. But at the same time, who's there to protect us in the military? We can, I was learning. I had friends, like I said, that knew witchcraft. That was studying Wiccan. I had friends. Not saying that those are bad things, but I had friends that were buying opium in, in the Middle East, buying hash in the Middle East. There was. We were exposed to everything at such a young age. And you think you know? People say, yeah, we're safe in the military. But also, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying we're unsafe, but you get exposed to a lot. Yeah, that's, you, you get exposed to a lot that you don't ever expect to be exposed to. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought that at all. That's kind of even blowing my mind a little bit. I kind of, I would have thought the military was pretty like straight and narrow for an 18 or 19 year old kid. Well, it, it can be. Don't get me wrong. The military is one of the greatest, is by far the greatest decision I've, I've ever made. But you got to think about it like this. If I join the Navy from Cleveland, I get sent to boot camp to Great Lakes in Chicago. My first duty station is in California. And then we leave California and we head right to Panama. I'm 18 years old. We head right to Panama. And what's in Panama back then in 84? Cocaine, women, prostitutes, alcohol. Okay. And we have a pockets full of money. 
Back then it was a lot. Now it's it's a lot. But then you get, so what are they gonna say? Here, you guys, you 18 years old, you're old enough to fight for this country. We can't, we we're not gonna not let you come in this bar. That's the main yeah. thing. When 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 we aside from keeping the sea lanes open, we establish friendships with host countries. They love the military when it comes into town. When you, when a military ship pulls into to, to any town, country, continent, whatever, they're gonna spend at least maybe a little less or more, maybe a little less, but upwards of one million dollars being in that port for four to five days. They charge the ships for water. They charge to handle our our sewage, they charge them to, you know, there's a bar that connects from the pier to the ship. You get charged for that, you get charged for electricity. So when a ship comes into a foreign port, they it's open arms, wide open. They don't ask you how old you are, none of that. You don't get in that. And another thing, the older guys are taking in the younger guys, breaking us in per se, whether it's drinking all night and seeing if you can work the next day, whether it's having women all night and seeing if you can continue to, to keep the same women the next day and the next day. This is around the world. I tell people I've been in the longest party that anybody can possibly be in from 18 to probably my mid-40s is when it slowed down. But don't get me wrong, the military is a great place to be, provides your education, it provides stability for families. It's more, it's more cleaned up now but back then, it was a big rodeo. I mean, it was a big rodeo. People would love, people tried their best to get into the military. It was easier to get in back then because they had a thing called Cat 4s. Category 4 where you can just take the test. If you scored a 5, you can get in. But those are some of the hardest workers. Some of the guys that, that, that didn't have it mentally, they didn't have the aptitude to learn, and I was one of them. Those are some of the hardest working people because not only do they have something to prove to stay in the Navy, they have something to prove to their family that said, hey, you're dumb. You're dumb. You never get in the military. And they wind up getting in, you know, but yeah, it's a, it's one of the biggest parties. I had the greatest time in my life. Um, it taught me a lot. I'm not saying, I mean, there are some negative things, but it taught me a lot. The military will make you a leader at a young age. It will teach you responsibility. It teaches you how to be prompt. Uh, back then, there was a lot of um, divorces. There was a lot of drugs. There was a big drug epidemic, but I didn't have to partake in those drugs, and I didn't. But I did partake in the alcohol, which is a legal drug. I did partake in the prostitution, which was in some companies, in some countries, it's legal. It's what they do. It's how they make a living. And in companies like the Philippine Islands, if a young lady doesn't want to be a prostitute, she gets punished for it. I don't care if we're in there in that in the Philippine Islands for a week long. If you want that young lady, I'm speaking of women that are of age, if you want her for every day for a whole week, that's what they're going to do for you because we bring money. They want money over there. They want people to come to visit their country just to, you know, boost the economy. And that's what we did. So it wasn't about telling us, no, we couldn't do anything. That was never going to happen. But now that, you know, they cleaned it up a little bit, you know, the world is being cleaned up a little bit as far as, you know, being politically correct. You know, having having respect for yourself, you know, the, the military is a lot healthier now. They crack down on smoking. They crack down on obesity. They crack down on drugs. When I went in, you can do you can get bust for drugs three times before they kick you out. Three yeah. times. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it was cocaine, heroin, meth. It did not matter. You can get busted three times on the piss test. And they even at the third time is when you get kicked out. 
So we had, a, I saw a lot of guys get kicked out for drugs, hard drugs. Like I say, we pull in the, in, in the, into um, Bahrain, Bahrain, the way they pronounce it in the Middle East, and we're being, we're being offered opium. We pulled into uh, Turkey. We pulled into, um, yeah, Turkey. You know, you get offered all of these drugs. You know, Panama was cocaine. Cocaine in Panama, you get into a bar, you go into, every bar had cocaine in it. You all don't know that because you, if you went in, you may not have been exposed to it. But yeah. every bar, not only did they have alcohol, the alcohol is not what made them money. It was the cocaine. You buy, you pay $21 for the prostitute, she gets a dollar, and the $20 goes to, 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 to the kingpin. That's how it was. And if you wanted opium in the Middle East, you got opium. If you wanted uh, heroin overseas, you got heroin. If you wanted marijuana in Haifa, Israel, you got marijuana. That blew me away because one of the biggest things in Israel, aside from the Wailing Wall and the and the Sea of Galilee and the banks of Jordan, they smoke a lot of hair, a lot of marijuana in, in, in Israel. Israel is a beautiful place, lovely people, great food, great entertainment. Touring was great, but they will smoke marijuana over there. A lot of people didn't know that. I had no idea. I just thought it was all, you know, biblical verses and where Jesus was anointed and all those things. We rode camels and everything, but they smoked marijuana over there. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the military, and if I had a chance to do it all again, I would do it the same way, but you can get exposed to a lot in the military. Was that a surprise to you? Was that, did like, did yeah. you walk in and you're just like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? It, it, I didn't say, oh, God, because it was like the way I grew up, you know, with being molested and raped and found out um, sexually, it was like, I was like, cool, you know, because. It numbs it, sort of. You were able to run away from that? Was it kind of that sort of thing? No, actually, I ran, I ran more towards it because we were exposed to more sex. You can get porn in the streets in Italy. You can get porn in, 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 in Japan. You know, so those things I had at eight, nine years old, you know, going into the military was like, okay, I can kind of like take a break. But yeah, it was, it was a shock at the same time, but it was like those demons came right back because I had never dealt with those demons when it came to porn and sex. I had never dealt with them. They were still inside of me. All I did was suppress those demons. So when I saw it again in the military, I'm like, wow. And okay, and at, at home, I had to hide when I was watching porn, right? Eight, nine, ten years old. Now I'm in the Navy. I don't have to hide. It's what they do. It's part, it was part of the culture. I wasn't shocked about anything. That's why it was so easy for me to transition into the military with the, with the you know, my egregious ways, because more than anything, I was welcomed with that. Was that so? Was, was that mostly from uh, you know the the a lot of the cohorts having the same egregious ways, or is there was there like a pattern of sort of that childhood abuse that carries into the was that sort of rampant as well at that time? Do you think, or what do you think, or is it so just? My yeah, my cohorts had the same problems, same issues. We had the same problems when it came to you know childhood abuse. We can all relate and talk about it. Some of my friends come from foster care. That were, they were in the Navy. Some of my friends come from juvenile back then. You can you go to court, say, for instance, you had a felony. Say, for instance, you had a DUI or you robbed a store or you broke in somebody's house. Back then, in the 80s, you go to court and the judge said, hey, you either 
go to jail or you go to the Navy. So we had those same type of people, just like me, like-minded people that were doing the same thing as a child. Now here we are all together in the world's most powerful military. So we worked hard and we played hard, but we all, the majority of us start just alike. The majority of us were raped and molested. The majority of us come from foster care and orphanages and off the street and homeless shelters. Yeah, it was a lot of kids that came in out of there out the same, from the same background that I came from. So we were all able to relate. But now it's like you get paid in the military. You, get go, you go, go to the most exotic countries for free. You got medical and dental. We didn't care about college. Those are the same type of kids that I was around. Nobody cared about college in the military back then. Not at all. It was like, wow, I'm free. I'm out of the orphans. I got out of jail. I'm not in foster care anymore. Nobody's beating me up. Nobody's harassing me. You know, nobody's raping me. Now I'm in the military. But guess what? Those same, that same mindset when you come in the military, those guys that were rapists, those guys that were stealing and breaking in the houses, guess what? That came back to them again. Just like my, my sexual demons came back to me, those guys still had those demons in them. They never fixed them. They came back. And instead of robbing somebody in New York, instead of robbing somebody in Philadelphia, instead of beating somebody up in, in Florida, they did it in the Philippine Islands. They did it in Australia. They did it in, in, in Italy. They did it in Singapore. So those we none of us got help with that. That's why you see a lot of guys get out of the military and they got PTSD. They have social issues. They have medical, their mental issue, issues. And because they never deal with those demons. I never dealt with my demons until I was 50 years old. Now in the Navy, when you retire, you have to transition out. You have to decompress. The Navy SEALs go through it. The Green Berets go through it. The Marine Recons go through it. Even I went through it. You have to decompress. You go see a psychiatrist, a psychologist, um, a chiropractor, the, the eye doctor, the dentist. They check your whole body and you transition out. Well, with me, my a lot of times when you transition out from the military, there's a time where they say, hold on, time out. We need to stop. They ask you certain questions and based on how you answer that question, it it, it 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 all tell it tells the doctor which way they need to go and how they're gonna determine your illness. So that's when I found out that I had PTSD. That's when I found out that I had addictions as a child that I never dealt with. That's when I found out I never let my, you know, the anger of my mother abandoning me. I never let it go. My mother became addicted to crack in the 80s. We lost my mother three times. The first time we lost her is when we lost the house. The second time we lost her is when uh she moved away. And then the third time we lost is when she died. But yeah, so so this is all on the exit interview of your military. So this is like your uh, what do they they um, like decommissioning or debriefing? This is in your debriefing. So this is like so everyone who goes in the military, you have to go through these steps to to get out. Sort of that's part of your debriefing or your discharge or whatever. It's part of your debriefing and your discharge because what happens is the government has funds set aside for our disabilities. People have heart attacks in the military. People have brain injuries in the military. People develop PTSD. People develop um, personality disorders, migraines. So they have to make sure we're good to go when we get out. If we're not good to go, then they have to treat us. That's why you have these VA facilities that are so filled with Army vets, Navy vets, Marine vets that are still in there, that are, that are in nursing homes because you know, they, they, didn't find out, they didn't find out that they had all these issues until they transitioned out. What happens is you're so well taken care of in the military, 
You know, you're so active. You're going, going, going every day, whether you're deploying, you're shooting people, you're killing the bad guy. Once that all stops, depression kicks in. Once, once depression kicks in, people start picking up bad habits, smoking cigarettes again, drinking alcohol even more. Right. They start picking up the, 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 the anger issues come back because now you don't have that camaraderie anymore. You don't have those friends around anymore. And so the purpose. Right. Right. You don't have a purpose. Right. There you go. Your purpose is gone. So it all starts when you start to sit down on your butt and you don't do anything. You don't remain active. And a lot of us put on weight because in the military, you are required to maintain a certain weight, a certain body fat. Twice a year, we get tested. That's not enough, but we get tested twice a year. So when we get out, people go back. It's called resocializing. You go back to your old ways. So a lot of people go back to being addicted to drinking and sex. Even though we were doing it in the military, we had to maintain a certain standard. So it wasn't like out of control because the moment it got out of control, it's like, oh, I can get kicked out now. So let me maintain this. Let me suppress it just a little bit. Let me drink just a little bit. Let me watch just a little bit of porn. But when I get out, it's wide open. But at that point, you have nobody to watch you or care for you anymore. So, you know, you kind of like, you fall off. A lot of people fall off when they retire. They do. Yeah, and I guess they, when you're at service, still you, you get those sort of breaks where you're out at sea for a month and a half or two months, and you're not sort of exposed to it quite as much. Right. So what happens is, the longest I've been out to sea without pulling in was 83 days. It was 120 degrees. We were in the Persian Gulf, patrolling the northern part of the Persian Gulf and the southern part of the Persian Gulf. Back then, when they were shooting missiles at the tankers, just, you know, blowing up tankers, sinking them with oil in them, sinking them with uh, natural resources, whether it be grain, um, whatever, coal. So it, it was like 83 days was the longest I had gone out. And yeah, you're right. We don't have much out there but food and work on a ship. So it's kind of cleanse your soul. You kind of cleanse your, you know, ease your mind. But, but guess what? The moment you pull back in, the first thing we go out there are those demons, the alcohol, the sex, the porn. And so, for some people, the drugs. And, and then, then, you know, it's finally you're 50 years old and you do this exit interview. So this is the first time you've, you've talked to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Well, the first time I talked to psychiatrists was in 1987, uh, May 18th, for about two weeks, because on May, 6, May 17th, 1987, when you guys get a chance to look it up, the USS Stark was hit by two missiles. USS Stark was hit by two missiles. You'll see a picture up there. The ship is sinking and it's burning. Well, I got be the picture. You wish for. I always wanted to help somebody save a life. I got that chance. In the military, you re, you're not re, well, you can't, you're required to go to firefighting schools. Almost everybody in the Navy is a firefighter at one point in time in their life, in their career. So I was on the fire team because I'm like a rather macho guy, you know, very masculine. I want to do all the hard jobs. So I volunteered to be on the firefighting team. I was kind of told, and then I liked doing it. I went to the schools, we did well. Anyway, the USS Star got bombed by two missiles on May 17th, 1987. We were at, the USS Reed was at the southern part of the Persian Gulf. The USS Stark was at the northern part of the Persian Gulf. We got the call to go and assist them. It took us about 12 hours. We had both engines online. We're doing 25 knots in 12 hours. We get there, and the ship is tilted, it's sinking, it's smoking. My firefighting team was the first team to go on board that ship. 
And what I saw changed my life forever. I was 21 years and seven months old, had no idea what I would see. But when I got there, I saw 37 dead men burned to death. We picked up feet. We picked up hands. We picked up fingers. We picked up heads. We didn't know, we didn't know what to expect when we got there. We were there for so long, death became the norm to me. Have you ever smelled burning flesh? If you never smelled it, it's one of the worst smells you will ever smell. And you never, ever forget it. Those 37 men died from that missile attack. They were burned to death. A lot of guys were burned to the floor, the metal floor. We had to peel them off the floor. And in, and in doing so, one guy would peel off the floor, all of this off his forearms, and the, the, right, the right side of his jaw came off. We had to, like, scrape him off the deck. So we found a lot of guys that were drowned um, within the ship because it flooded. Um, they died from being boiled to death. So in the Navy, you have these things called emergency escape breathing devices. They don't have them anymore. They're used to escape from a, a smoke-filled space. So if your bedroom or your studio is filled with smoke, you turn around and you put that on, it gives you one minute to get out, and you out. You can breathe inside of it. Well, they use those to firefight, and that's the wrong thing to do. And what happened was, the heat was so intense, it burned to their face. So we had to remove those that equipment off, and off came these guys' face, a lot of them. So we stayed there for a day. Um, they, we shipped the bodies off. We stacked them up. We put toe tags on them, and we put them in body bags, and they put them on another ship in the freezer. And we stayed there. I was terrified to stay there overnight because it just felt like the devil was hovering over the entire ship. Well, the next day started the psychiatrist process, and up until this day, even now, I still dream about about two or three of those men that I had to recover. We recovered 37 of them. I carried 37 of them, um, and it was one one guy in particular that I had to that I still think about, and I had I still dream about because he was about six three, and I didn't know that I was stepping on him when we were fighting the little fires. My friend said, "Hey, Leon, look down. There's a body under your feet." And I looked down, and he was there. Everything was burned. I mean, his clothes, he was burned from inside out, but his face was all gone. It was just a black skeleton. And I went down to pick him up to put him in the body bag. My arm hit his mouth and his teeth fell out. So I had to stand him up, and we stood him up. His head kind of fell down. You can see the insides of his neck, no eyeballs. Picture that. Imagine looking at something like that. And that's a face that I still see to this day, even when I think about it. I used to get chills when I talk about this, but I don't get chills anymore. But I kept that in for my entire life, from 21 years old to 50. But at 21, that's when we started talking to psychiatrists to answer questions. So did and you just sort of, were you sort of just sort of shell-shocked or maybe you're still 21 and you got too much bravada and you sort of, did you sort of maybe kind of headstrong your way through that, that psych psychiatry? Yeah, headstrong, too much bravado, both of those. You hit it right on the head. Because it's, you know, when you're in the military, Back then, you come in, you're macho, you're cocky, you're arrogant, you want to prove everybody wrong. There was some, now don't get me wrong, there was some guys that, that lost their mind that night and that next day, and they had to, they were discharged out of the Navy because they didn't recover. Well, I had an innate ability to separate myself from hurt, from harm, from pain, and from reality, and I get that from my mother. And I didn't realize that I was processing that when I was going through this USS Stark incident, but that's what helped me get through that time because I kind of blocked it out. I kind of suppressed it. And again, talking to the psychiatrist, I was like, doc, it's not a big deal. We were here to do what we have to do. 
But I didn't realize that it was uh, it was etched in my memory for, for the rest of my life. And then moving forward, as I turned 50 and started talking to the psychiatrist, she wanted me to relive the story. I never relived it. I tucked it away. Just like I tucked being raped away. I tucked being molested. I tucked it all away. But I, I tucked that, that away until I was 50. And she made me write it over, not talk, well, we talk about it too, but she made me write the story over and over and over again. And that's when I started tearing up. That's when I started telling her, you know what? I dream about these guys every single night. This is what I see. I had to draw her pictures. So that was her way of getting out of me. And she did because I've never dealt with it. But, you know, the, the, the bravado of, of all of that and being being strong, being strong willed, strong minded. And the fact that I inherited that from my mother, I was able to keep it down until it was really time for me to dis to discuss it. And that's when I did. And I was 50 years old. Do you uh do you think the recruiting recruiting process of the military is kind of geared to get people that have that innate ability through their experiences to handle things like that and dissociate and deal with it while in the moment where they have to handle something? No, not at all. You know why? Because if they do that, if they ask those questions, they get the answers, they're not going to get a lot of people because this this generation is pretty pretty soft unless you meet a young kid that has an old soul. But if the military started doing that, you know, they wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to man up the military. Right now, I think it's about, we have to put in the average about 44,000 a year into the military, the Navy at least. Years ago, it was 35,000 per year. But now I think it's like 44,000 a year that we put in. But no, if they were to ask those questions, they were to give those kids those type of tests, a lot of them would fail. That's why you have, now, special forces do that. They get to a certain point where, if they, if they don't ask the questions, they take them through uh, uh, optional courses and, and physical toughness, mental toughness. They make them cold and wet for hours, and those are guys that break and quit. So that's their way of weeding out the weak, the weak people. But the only way to weed out the weak, the weak ones mentally are the ones that don't have the aptitude to learn is by giving them the ass bath. If they take their test and they pass, guess what? They, the recruits are going to do their damnest to get them into the military. So they're not going to have time. In fact, they, they, they're hoping and wishing these kids don't have any mental uh, type of injury or illnesses. Because if they do, they're not joining. So the military, the recruiters have a quota per month. Every person has to put in one or two people per month. They are not. I was a recruiter. I did it for four years. So I know they're not going. They're going to hope and wish that these kids don't have any type of mental problems or plates or screws in their body because if they don't they don't qualify so can you kind of can you take us through that sort of process of of dealing with your demons you know you you kind of and I'm, I'm curious now in retrospect if you think it would have do you think there would have been any benefit to just dealing with those demons at that time at 21 or was that you know were we not there yet as a culture no as a culture definitely back then wasn't there yet at all. We didn't even, I, I was ashamed, to be honest, I was ashamed of those demons. So I didn't want to deal with them. And in fact, I was the only one that knew about my own demons. However, those demons were my addiction. Those demons were what made me, uh, it would allow me to have fun. Those demons were my outlet. If I was angry or tired from work, I'd go smoke, I'd go drink, I'd go watch porn. I would try to chase as many and sleep with as many women as, as possible. So those demons were like an aid to me. Those demons were, you know, just get me through life. And the culture back then, it wasn't even about talking about demons. 
they laugh at you if you tell people you had demons. I couldn't do that. I didn't want to do that. Yeah. Now that I'm older and more mature, and I'm a, I, I, it's not that I'm embarrassed about it, but I want to tell my story to give back to people say, hey, as a young man, you have these demons. You have to deal with them because those demons are the reason why I couldn't stay in relationships. Those demons are the reason why I couldn't remain married. Those demons were why I, I was always cheating. I was afraid to commit. I was mischievous. I was devious. So talking about demons back then, nah, the demons back then, to be honest, there were, were the things, that was the thing to have. It was good to be a, a, a whoremonger. It was good to have a, a, to drink all night long and then come to work drunk. It was good to do those things. Some guys, it was, we looked up to the guys that snorted cocaine and didn't get caught. We looked up to guys that smoked weed and were still able to work at nighttime while we're out to sea. We looked up to guys that brought marijuana and, and opium and hash on the, on the ship and got away with it. You know, that was, that was like, that was, they were like our heroes. You know, it's like coming from the inner city, my heroes were the guys that were the pimps, the hustlers, the drug dealers. Those were the cool guys. You know, you look at the look at the rock bands back in the 70s and 80s. Those were the guys we looked up to. I look, even coming from the inner city of Cleveland, East Cleveland, my parents made sure we were very diverse and not just being human beings, but music, right? So I not only did I listen to The Temptations, the OJs, but I listened to Kiss. I listened to Blue Oyster Cult. I listened to Chicago. I listened to... You know, the, the, the BGs, the Doobie Brothers. I listen to all those groups. So those, you know, the rock stars were probably your heroes too back then. The way they they womanized and they tore bars and they drank and they got on stage and tore guitars and womanized. You know, so just back, back in the Navy, the demons were like our best friend. They were my best friends. You know, I didn't want to be nice. Being nice in the military back then got you in trouble. Being nice got you ran over. You were left behind if you were nice. So then fast forward, you're 50, uh, you're doing your, 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 your debriefing. Uh, so do you go into that knowing you want to deal with your demons or she just kind of pulls or your, your doctor, I think you said it was a, she, right? She, yeah. she, she was able to pull that out of you. Now, did that start with the trauma and then go into all the childhood stuff or like, did you go in wanting to deal with all that or did it just sort of start dumping out like, uh, started dumping out. I did not want to talk about it. I didn't want to deal with it. Um, it started with me telling her about my mother that, you know, my mother died from, she was addicted to crack. Um, she died in 2012. It started off by that. And I told her, I said, I'm still pissed off at my mother. I love my mother to death. My mother and I had a very close, but very far relationship, uh, because I was still angry about her losing the house. I was angry about her leaving us, sending us across town to live with somebody we didn't know. I was angry about her, you know, getting high. You know, I was angry about my mother selling the jewelry that I bought her from the Middle East. I was still angry with my mother at 50 years old. I told my mother that I loved her when she was on her deathbed. And she smiled. The lady said, your mother hadn't smiled in six months. She was in California. I was here. I flew there to see her. And I walked in there and she said, your mother smiled for the first time in six months. You must be her son. I said, yeah. And that's when I told my mother I loved her. She had developed a severe case of diabetes. They had removed both of her legs. This was all from smoking crack. So my, my therapy started off by talking about my mother because I loved her. I loved her to death. I was just so angry with her because I, you know, I've always wanted a mother. Uh, I felt abandoned for a long time and every relationship I got into, I not only did I fall in love with the girl that I was dating, but I fell in love with her mother because I loved that mother figure. 
I love the nurturing. But when my mother abandoned me, I was afraid of abandonment. That goes into that room, all of my relationships. But my therapy started with talking about my mother. And she made me understand. She said, well, the fact that your mother was on drugs, that wasn't your mother. There was the drugs that you were dealing with. You weren't dealing with your mother. And that's when it all started to open up for me. I started crying. And then it started going into my childhood. She's asked me questions. I talked about the USS Stark. And I talked about the anger that I have with the guys on the ship that I could not save, that I wanted to save. I was unable to save. They lost their lives. Family was destroyed. You know, so, yeah, it, it, it started with the therapy. It started with talking about my mother and my parents' divorce because I, too, am divorced. I repeated the same thing that my father was doing. You know, I, was, I became an extreme person. I became verbally abusive. I became mentally abusive. When I spanked my children, it was like to the extreme. I make them strip down naked. My father would do that to us. So I kind of repeated the, the behavior. So that all came out of my therapy. And I just talking to her about the things that I never wanted to talk about. I never knew why I was acting the way I was acting. But it was because I was holding those demons in. I never dealt with them. I was best friends with those demons. Those demons gave me what I, what I thought I needed in my life, what I wanted. But it wasn't what I needed. But those were those demons were my best friends. They were the people that I could I call them people. They were the people that I could turn to when I was upset with my girlfriend or when I was upset with my wife. I turned to my demons to make me feel better. I turned to my demons to cope with reality. It became a coping mechanism for me. If I was in an argument with my wife at the time, it the worst, the, oh, there's a couple of things I can do. Be verbally abusive or go smoke some cigarettes and drink for the rest of the night or go cheat. And those were my demons, and that's what I did. It made me feel better. Even, I didn't. I was so cold-hearted, you know, I didn't feel bad about cheating. And I talked about that in my therapy. I was like, that was my way of dealing with reality. That was the way my, my way of dealing with pain, to hurt somebody else, to put my pain off on them. I could be sitting next to my girlfriend knowing that I just slept with another woman because my girlfriend pissed me off, and there's nothing she can say to me right now to make me mad because... I just cheated. I know the worst thing you can do to a woman, a couple of things. You can cheat on them, you can give them a disease, or you can get somebody else pregnant. And I did that too. So my therapy was a whole bunch of work on me. It was seven months long, uh, once a week. Sometimes I would go twice a week. But I started feeling better when I started relieving all this stuff off of my mind, off of my heart, off of my soul. And, and I started to grow and I started to see, my man, I feel better now. I feel better. I had like three or four different people inside of me, three or four active people inside of me. And I had to just get rid of all of them by talking, accepting, uh, accepting that I was, you know, a damaged person. I still had that little kid in me that was raped and molested. I still had that angry, devious, devilish little kid deep inside my soul. I never let him out until I was 50 years old. If there's somebody else out there that's, like having these same type of demons, like what, what is your suggestion as a first step? Is, is it to go to a therapist? Is it to, you know, be more open with your friends, yourself? Is Like what's a good step? The first step is to identify them. Write those demons down. What are they? My demon is, I like methamphetamines. My demon is, I like porn. My demon is, I like bestiality. You got to look at those, write them down and look at them. And it should scare the hell out of you because it scared the hell out of me. And you can find a close friend that, you know, well, that knows all your worst secrets. Right. And you can tell that person. Also, you tell people I found a few people that I can tell that I did not want to hurt 
or I did not want to let down. I said, look, man, this is, I'm trying to get over these things, these demons. And they were like, what are they? And I'd show them, they're like, man, I didn't know all of that. Because in the military, you're required to, to have high standards. You're required to be a leader. You're required to be engaged with your people. So you can't let people see that side of you. I had to find somebody else that I can trust and say, hey, man, this is what I'm dealing with. So the first thing you need to do is to, I, I wrote them down. I wrote them down and I accepted it. I said, this is who I am. And then you have to tell yourself, I don't want to be this person anymore. I'm tired of it. Even though the porn and the, and the liquor and the smoking and stuff felt good to me and having all the women that felt good to me, it was killing me on the inside. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't be truthful to anybody. I was lying to everybody. I just got, you have to be tired of it too. You write it down, you have to be tired of it, and you have to be willing to go to the next side. What's, for, what's, what's, what's next for me in life? How can I get forward, you know, move forward? And also I had to, you know, I said, you know what? I got to stop lying to these people that I'm leading. I didn't tell a lot of people what was going on with me, but I said, you know what? I can't, I can't tell these people to do this and I'm not doing it. So I had to live the lifestyle that I really wanted. I had to live the lifestyle that was out here for me. I had to live the lifestyle that God had planned for me. I tell people, I don't go to church, but I believe in God. I, had a, I have a great relationship with God. Brother, you have a great relationship with God, with Buddha, with Wiccan, and whatever. You believe in somebody more powerful than you and somebody that you love, somebody that you do not want to let down. And that's who you tell your worst secrets to. You, that's even if it's God, even if it's Buddha, if it's uh, Wiccan, and whatever the case may be, you tell that supreme being, you tell that powerful force, you write them down. I wrote mine down. And I put them up on the wall. With me, my relationship was with God and and a few close friends. I said, I'm I'm tired. I can't. I can't. I'm ready to release myself from this. And so that's when it started happening. And now, don't get me wrong. When you when you're ready to get rid of those demons, they're not ready to leave you. They're not. Oh no. So you have to let that person know. If it's three o'clock in the morning, hey man, I'm, I'm, I want to get on the computer and and watch some porn. No, don't do it, bro. Okay, that's that's all I needed to hear. My best friend on the other end said, "Don't do it. I'm not going to do it." And these are people that are always readily available to you. You got to have these people that are you can call at four or five o'clock in the morning. But my belief was in God, and my belief was in my closest friends and knew my darkest secrets. Now, like I said, I wasn't, it didn't happen overnight. If I wanted to get up and go have a drink, I'd call my friend, hey man, I'm fiending for some alcohol. You know, I'm fiending for a, a couple of women right now. I, I want, no, don't do it, bro. Don't do it. Now, these were people that had the same addictions that I had that got, got over them as well. So keep yourself surrounded by like-minded people. Keep yourself surrounded by people that are in recovery as well. I you want to get to where they are. Yeah, you don't write. You don't write. They want the best for you. That's the key. Write them down, identify them, and tell your best and closest friends that have gone through that or somebody that's going through it with you, do it together. It could be a husband and wife. It could be a brother and sister. But you got to, you have to be ready to make that change. You have to want to make that change. If you don't want to make that change, therapy is not going to help you. A psychiatrist is not going to help you. A psychologist is not going to help you. To me, those people piss me off. They listen, they write it down, they listen, write it down. There's no, there was no connection. I had connection with my therapist, I did, because she actually listened to me, and when she pissed me off, she would let me stay mad. She used to sit there in front of me. She would, a lot of times, I'd get up and walk out the office. And she said, well, I'll see you next week, or you can come back in if you feel like it. And I'm like, man, I can't be disrespectful to this lady. Now, that was another thing my father always taught me 
to never be disrespectful to people. It was kind of odd because I was disrespectful to women by cheating, but verbally abusive to, I mean, just basic respect to my elders. And my therapist was a, an older, older lady, thank God. If she was younger, I would probably have been attracted to her on my way out. It was I was still dealing with demons. But, you know, I, I, I would sit there and she would let me vent and let me talk. But to answer your question, I, write my, I wrote my demons down and I gave a letter to my closest friends to say, hey, this is what I'm dealing with. Can you help me? And those are people, like you said, people that want the best for you, like-minded people, people that have already gone through those demons and, and it was kind of like hurting from it. Instead of having a beer, they'll have some water. Instead of having a, a, a juicy burger after smoking some weed, we'll have, you know, maybe vegan, you know, something like that. But we just, I just, I, just, I started changing my life to be towards a healthier lifestyle mentally and physically. And, and over time, you start to feel better. Over time, you start to look better. Over time, you start to think better. And that's what I wanted and I needed. My mind became very clear. But to answer your question, yeah, I wrote them all down and I shared it with people. Now, you mentioned before how as a child, it was in a breakthrough moment to be able to rear puppies and, and find that. Have you found this uh, this continued like benefit and writing this book and being able to bring your story and help people in the same way? Yeah, I definitely found it because for a long time, I never wanted to write a book. I, I didn't like writing. I didn't like reading. I didn't read my first book until I was 50 and my first book in its entirety until I was 50. There was a book called um, A Child Called It because I can relate. He was abused. I didn't even know I was abused until I was 50. Had no idea. But I, that was the first book I read. And so um, my friend asked me to write a book. That's how my book came about. And I, did, I said, well, I'll think about it because I was talking to him about helping young men and women off the street getting them into his program. He had a, a ministry. And so he said, why don't you just write a book? Because he interviewed me. And so I started writing it and it became therapy for me. It became very therapeutic because I was reliving the story. I was writing about it. And then I could, I could actually sit here and laugh and smile about my story. Um, and I, I, for the people that are listening out there, if you don't, even if you don't want to think about writing a book, just start writing a journal it could turn into a book. But the biggest thing is that your book can help somebody out. It can save somebody's life because a lot of people, we all go through the same thing. We all have a lot of lot in common when it comes to drugs and addiction. But I chose to tell my story. I don't mind talking about it because I know it's going to reach somebody else. Just like you guys are doing podcasts, I may one day want to do a podcast because I like the way you guys set up. I like the way you ask your questions. This podcast can affect me. I might want to do a podcast. So, you know, you never know what you don't know, because I tell people, don't don't set your mind on one thing for your entire life, because I know some doctors, I know some dentists, I know some lawyers that are very unhappy, that have low morale. So going to what I'm what I'm saying is that allow your people, your friends, your kids to be free thinkers, to be free, you know, and don't make your kids, you know, concentrate on one thing, being a doctor, being a lawyer and going to school for 10, 15 years. And then they wind up not being un wind up being unhappy in their profession. So what I'm saying is that now that I've written, I've written a book, it could be therapy for somebody else. They can read it, and they, it may it may prompt them. Matter of fact, I've had about ten people over the last year to say, "Hey, man, you know, you're courageous for putting your story out there. I would have never done that. I'm too scared." But reading your book, it helped me think about my past. 
reading a book. I had a guy call me today. He said, I just read, I did an um, interview today with the uh, radio station, the Tom Barnard Show in uh, Minnesota. And he listened to the podcast or he listened to the interview. And he said it made him think that about his family. And he made some phone calls, found out the reason why his father beat him so bad is because he didn't think that he was his son. So my book can open, it has opened up a lot of feelings in a lot of people. And now they want to write and tell a story. The biggest thing about this is that if you don't want to let it out and you keep holding it in, that means you're embarrassed about it or you're going to continue doing the same thing over and over and over again. You're going to repeat those bad habits. So me putting this book out that could possibly reach thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people, I don't know. I don't care about making money. I want to tell people myself. I want to help people. I want to be able to heal people. I have a gift to talk to people and inspire people. So the thing is, writing a book, if you don't, if you don't want to put it out there, you hold it in, you're gonna keep, you're gonna repeat that behavior. I guarantee you. I was one of those people that repeated the behavior for 40, almost 45 years. Till I started talking about it, you know, I used to tell people a little bit about my life just to help them out. This is this is when I was 19, 20 years old. I just have a simple conversation. They come to me and like, hey man, I'm dealing with this. Well, hey, dude, guess what? I'm a, I'm addicted to porn too. And we laugh about it. And so they did, they were like, wow, it was that easy? I'm like, yeah, no big deal to me. But to answer your question, it's very, it was very therapeutic for me. Um, it opened up a lot of things that I had forgotten about. It helped me apologize to some of the people that I had verbally abused. Um, it, it, it told a story about me that people never knew, and it inspired people that had the same demons and, and was chasing the same addictions that I was chasing. So yeah, very therapeutic, just like Helping my dog deliver puppies. Did you um, did you end up uh, with journaling? Did you end up? Did you take up journaling as a practice after writing the book? Like, does does journaling fit in there at all? Because I mean, you know, journaling is pretty therapeutic too for finding demons and dealing with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do it daily. It's like I don't plan to do it, but you know, you have have you have the notes on your iPhone, the little note thing. I could be driving. I will because my memory is rather short in some most cases. A thought comes to me and I pull over and I'll put it in my notes and I'll come back home and I think about it. I'll look at it and I'm like, wow, you know, there's something else for me either to, to discover something I can talk about, something I can, you know, help people, some, somebody else, help somebody else out with. But a lot of times I talk to my friends and things that have come to me today, a matter of fact, is the way I had, you know, um, probably spanked my kids. You know, my one friend said he didn't spank his kids because his father spanked him so hard and you know i was the opposite i spanked my kids just as hard as my father spanked me and i regret that and he told me that today and i started journaling about that you know and writing it down and like man i can't go back and fix that but i'll never ever do that again because it was something that i in a weird way not paid for but i didn't pay it for but i carried it forward in my life and it was just the wrong thing to do i didn't know any better oh yeah you didn't ask for that momentum and energy it was dropped upon you and you know, children learn. You repeat behaviors. You have to deprogram yourself. You got to deprogram. You, you have to deprogram yourself. And this book helped me deprogram deprogram myself. Being therapeutic, you know, delivering the puppies. Think about that. It all helped deprogram myself. Journaling, Darren, like you said, journaling help helps me deprogram everything that I've gone through. Because if I have to write things down and look at it. And if it looks scary to me, it's like, wow. Even though it's here, when I see it, gives me a different perception of course that's uh and you know 
the other thing to think about, I mean, me and my, my wife and I, she watched most of it. I only watched a few of them, but there was just recently the Ancestral Healing Summit um, was was a webinar, and they had a bunch of things all day uh, where you could watch speakers speak and present, and it's all about an ancestral healing, and, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of this does point to the, the things, you know, it I think I've heard numbers as high as seven generations that that trauma can can travel forward and backwards. So I mean, if you think about it that way, I mean, maybe writing this book, you might have just broken a cycle that's been repeating itself for several generations. You know, I mean, I, if you believe in energy like that, and you've made a couple comments during this interview that makes me think that you do. Um, yeah, Dan. You, another you thing. Know, I'm sorry, I mean, cut you off. No, that's I was I was about done. The other the only other thing I was going to say is it's never too late to say sorry either, right? Right, that's true. Never too late, and I've been doing that too. Um, I was reading this book after I read my first book, A Child Called It. I started reading a book that was recommended me to my close friend Nancy Manning. It's called uh, It's by Ryan, Doctor Ryan Lee. A really, really easy read. Not a thick book at all. Thick books scare me. It's probably be a hundred some pages, but it's called uh, unlock your brain or who turned off my brain or who turned on my brain, but Dr. Ryan Lee. So what you just said about doing damage generations down the line, you know, the way she talks about healing that, the way she talks about fixing that is by having positive thoughts, changing your, changing your blood cells instead of delivering those bad blood cells into your offspring. If you deliver those off, those black, bad blood cells into your offspring, Guess what? They're going to deliver them to their offspring and offspring and offspring. And that's where you get that four to five, six, seven generations down the line. Because we never fix that. By fixing it, you can just talk about it. You can educate people on, hey, don't be, you know, this is what happens if you're addicted to porn. Porn goes to wanting sex. Wanting sex goes to having sex. Having sex goes to being promiscuous. Being promiscuous goes to wanting more sex and, and possibly getting a disease and possibly, you know, damage somebody else's life. So it goes from one thing to the next. But if you can educate people on the bad things that you've gone through, the bad thoughts that you've had, the addictions that you had, you can heal and change those blood cells because blood cells regenerate themselves just like that. So I may not be able to go inside you, Darren, and say, hey, I'm going to change these blood cells, but I can tell you what can happen if you're verbally abusive. I can tell you what can happen if you hit your wife. I can tell you what happened, what can happen if you grope somebody, you know? I can tell you what happened if you say bad words to people. And you're like, okay, Leon, I got you. Let's talk about it. And you stop doing that. So that next person won't, won't take that on. And then when they do finally hear from now, from years from now, it sounds foreign to them. It's like, man, what the hell is that? Like these kids nowadays, <clears throat> if you yell at them, some of them go into a ball, right? They curl up, they cry, they run away. But somebody, if somebody wants to yell at the three of us, it's like, all right, dude, whatever. That's because we were raised like that. We were built like that. But these kids are not built like that. So you have to change that by talking to them, by communicating and educating them on it. You know, you educate other people. The screamers about not screaming at people because it's going to affect those kids. But screaming at us is not a base. It's actually funny when people scream. It'll piss us off. It might make you want to fight. But at the same time, it's not going to make you curl up in the ball and quit. But these kids, now this generation, you yell at them and they go tell on you. And they're going to tell the teachers and the principals and the superintendent. I've been through that. And I said, well, I can't do that because these kids, even though they are smart mouth kids, they're still going to talk smart. They're going to they're going to still curl up in the ball when you yell at them. They're smart mouth, but they're not they're not mentally tough. 
But you can make them mentally tough. You can train them. You can slowly get them there by building up their confidence. But I was too rough with my kids. I'm, I'm, I'm easing down on them now a whole lot. Because I've seen what happens when you yell at them. I've seen what happens when you threaten to hit them or something like that. They can't take it. They're not used to hearing that language. That's our language. That's not their language. That's all. We can talk to each other like that all day long. It's not a big deal. And then we go drink a beer or smoke a cigar, or smoke some weed. We're cool. These kids, they're going to go do ecstasy. You know, they're going to go pop some pills. They go smoke some weed. You look, look, think about it. I haven't seen it. I've seen, I've seen it with the white kids and the black kids when it comes to R&B. But I guarantee you, these kids, this generation, these kids are not tough. <clears throat> but they have an old soul. I learned this from being a teacher for two years in the ROTC program in the inner city. The school is predominantly Spanish, a few blacks, a few whites. But these kids have an old soul. I listen to all the R&B songs that they're singing nowadays. It's not like it used to be. But these songs are talking about hurt and pain and love and abandonment. They are. The new, I mean, the new rock and roll songs might be talking about the same thing. You look at the, the, the country and western songs. Country western always talked about love and happiness and hurt and pain. But these kids are going back to that. They can, they can understand it through music. They can understand it through conversation. But when you get mad and angry at them, they don't know what to do with it. They're old souls when it comes to words and music. But after that, when the music is off, they don't, they, they're kind of lost because all they got is Instagram, Facebook, and, and Snapchat. That builds up their, their courage. That builds up their, their, their self-esteem. You know, so that's one of the biggest things we have. One of the issues we have in this world today is the communication because you can communicate with somebody far, far away but yet you don't communicate with anybody that's right there in your own household. You know, it's kind of weird, but yeah. But yeah, the social media is a huge problem. Huge, huge. They don't know how to communicate straight up face to face. They, 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 they shy away from it. But keep in mind there, these kids have an old soul. If you sit down and talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, if you're real with them and honest, they'll listen. I guarantee you that you can give me any kid, in any state around the world, and I can sit down and talk one-on-one, -on -one, man to man, because they have an old soul. They will understand it. Even though they have the Snapchat and social media stuff, you get listen to these to some, some songs. If you have kids, listen to the songs that they're listening to now and look, listen to the words that are coming from those songs. Listen to the words. Those words were said back in the 60s and the 70s. They are coming back. These kids are, 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 are struggling with that because they're like, well, I, I understand this song, this music, and it, this is something, Dad, that you grew up on, but they can't understand. They don't have the hard, the work ethic. They don't. Well, we have the, the music, the lyrics, and the work ethic. We got it all. Yeah, we, we, we were just lacking the emotional intelligence, I guess. Emotional intelligence, right. And so these kids don't have that either. But we have the ability to go into that emotional intelligence. We do. Compassion, passion, empathy, courage. We have that. The EMIQ. We have that. But you teach these kids about that, like, oh, you know, you know, they have a lot of, they don't even have, they don't even have empathy. One big thing they do have, they got sympathy. They sympathize really quick. They want a hug. They want you to pat them on the back. They want you to give them something. That's right. But we can go back. We do have the EMI. We do have the passion, compassion, you know, courage and things like that. 
empathy. Well, I like what you say there because I never really thought about those uh, aspects as being really positive. So it kind of makes me think that, you know, as generations go, that there's going to be a swing back. There's going to be a, a middle point somewhere in between this hardness and this um, extreme sympathy. It's coming. It's coming back. It's like you say, the pendulum is swinging. It's, it's probably about right here, 75 percent, maybe 50 percent of the way back. And that's what these kids like on to. So if you ever want to get into a kid's mind, understand the music that we listen to and relate that to your conversation with them. I guarantee you, you can get their attention. I've done it for two years and it blew me away. I could sit there and talk. When I was teaching, I was teaching all TC. I could teach firefighting, navigation, leadership, shipbuilding. Guess what? They liked it because it was different, right? I told them sea stories. But when I stopped teaching, I said, okay, now we're going to have real talk. Now we're going to talk about relationships. Now we're going to talk about divorce. And these kids were 14 to 17 years old. You know what they did? They put their phones down. I didn't have to tell them to put their phone away. They put their phones down and they scooped their chairs up and they listened. They said, we want to hear these things. But the problem is, it's not in the curriculum. These teachers are young. They're not, they're not, these teachers don't even know how to talk to these kids like I do. They can't because they don't have it. They're almost in the same generation. So the teachers are not allowed to talk to them about real life experiences. I was doing that. I made that part of my weekly conversation every Friday with the kids to talk about real life situations. I told them what can happen to a female's body if she gets, a, if she gets an abortion. We talked about that. We talked about divorce. Nobody talks about that in high school. They don't. But you're right. The pendulum is swinging back slowly. And if you want to get to some kids, if you want, if you want to hire somebody to to, to, to help you with the podcast, if you want to interview them, sit down and talk to them about real life issues. They will, the life, the eyes will get big, the ears will perk up because they don't get that. You know why? Because the parents are older and they don't think that that's part of a relationship they can have with their kids. But it's, it's, it's essential that you have that relationship with them. That's the only way you're going to reach them. The yelling part don't work. Yeah, it's only like... It's Go like ahead, it's a, it's like a thing that's sort of missing from the days maybe when we were when we were more raising kids as a group than in a nuclear family. You sort of had you sort of had those crazy uncles around as well. You had the sort of the parental figures, and then you had other adults that were just sort of more chummy, and you got sort of both sides of that relationship as opposed to now yeah. just parents stuck with kids and everyone's going crazy and stressed out. And that's right, parents. You got the chummy side. You got the other side. And now you got parents stuck with kids. But you know what? Parents are stuck with kids, but they that's why they're so happy to drop them off at school and be done with it. Be done with it. I took a kid's cell phone last year in May. She freaked out. But you know the worst part about that? I was like, you can freak out all you want. You're not getting your phone back. Her mother called the principal. The yeah. principal came to my classroom. And said, why did you take her phone? I said, sir, she's breaking the rules. He said, yeah, yes, I know, but her mom called me. I said, so what? I had to talk to her mom. I said, look, I took your daughter's phone. You know why? She said, well, I said, because you don't take it. You don't, you never take your daughter's phone. So I took her daughter's phone and I said, look, how does it feel? She didn't like us, but she was breaking the rules. I said, you're breaking the rules. And she decides she's going to join the name, right? So I said, you were wrong, but you called your mother and told your mother to take your phone. Your mother called the principal. First one come talk to me. Now I'm I'm in trouble because you broke the rules. So 
that in that instance, we didn't have the different type of parenting um, uh, mechanism right there. Both of them was like chubby, chubby, cully, cully, you know, and here I am, the hard guy in the middle, like, I needed some help. But I think I gave her a phone back. At the end of the day, I held on to it. Had I broke down and gave it to her when her mother called, I would have lost the battle. Yeah. She would have kept re- repeating that. But a lot of these parents, what I'm saying is a lot of these parents don't know how to relate to their kids. They're afraid to relate to them by being tough on them. But you don't have to be tough on them. You can talk to them. Like I said, you talk to them about real life stuff. Well, you know, don't, you shouldn't use the phone. That's breaking the rules. You can wait to text when you get out of the class, whatever the case may be. They'll listen. But the yelling and screaming. And then when these kids know they're wrong, they know that if they tell their mother and they cry, their mother's going to feel bad. There comes the nurturing part. Okay, I'll call the principal and we'll get your phone back. And then the principal gets into his little nurturing phase and feeling all bad and upset because the kid is unhappy. The kid is mad. So what? You got the kid broke the rule. When when you go to a job and break the rule, you're going to lose money. You're going to lose time. You might even lose your job. Well said. So uh, before we wrap up here, Laron, where can uh, where can we get the book? So you can get the book on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. It's all over, bro. The, the way my publishing company did it, they put it. It's everywhere. It's um, Kindle. You can download it electronically. Um, if people want to get in touch with me, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Leon R. Walker. You can Google me. I got a lot of my military stuff on there. My retirement ceremony is on there, some of it, you know, but um, yeah, Instagram, Facebook, Leonard Walker. Um, it's easier to order a book on Amazon. For some reason, it seems quicker. You know, Amazon is huge. It gets you what you want, when you want it, and, yeah. and as fast yeah. as you want it. But yeah, um, I do, I'm do. i starting to do another tour around here. I'll be going to Cleveland and Chicago for my book tour and, and, and branching out after that. But um, yeah, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, um, any anywhere really where that's selling that, that's selling books, whether it be on a Kindle or e-reader or you know paperback or a hardcover. But anyway, in all anybody's listening, you can be an author. It's not hard. You got content. You can have a book. You can write a book that's ten pages. Talk about being addicted to alcohol and how you overcame that. Great book, powerful book. You can do it. It's not hard. I just kept writing and writing and writing. I started writing June sixteenth, uh, June sixth of two thousand sixteen. I didn't stop writing until August 11th of 2016. I wrote for 65 days. And when I was done data dumping my life, I had a thousand pages. So I turned it into four books, maybe five. Jeez. Well, I yeah. can't wait for the next one to come out. And uh, when it does, give us a ring and we'll have you back on. Sure, bro. I enjoyed it, you know, being here with you guys. I know I talked your heads off. <laughs> That's what it's for. That's what's fun. Yeah. If you decide you want to start up a podcast, uh, shoot us an email. And we'll see what we can do to help. Definitely. I keep that in mind. Hey, I'm doing more than one thing. Always multitask. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. I'm kind yeah, of the I same see. way. Okay, yeah, Leon. Be... We'll have a wonderful right, night. It was wonderful talking. Nice talking to you guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Come back anytime. I will. I look forward to it. Had a good time. And that was a chat with uh, Leon Walker. What'd you think, Adam? Oh, I thought it was uh, good. I liked his, um, you know, his journaling. I've had experience with therapists in the past, and I sympathize with them where you have man, just somebody there that you can't connect with. So being able to have an option to to self-journal, to discover, to sit down with your friends, just 
you know, a roadmap that you know has worked for somebody else, that's that's kind of a cool thing. It's a nice little uh, tool to stick in your belt. Absolutely. And, uh, and I like the delivery too. You know, I think that's, I think it's an important message to sort of get that delivery from as many different angles as possible. And it sort of drills you into everyone's head that, you know, we're all sort of, well, sort of, you know, eking our way through life the same way. And it's okay to talk about it. Well, and one of the things I love that he's doing, and I remember this from my kid, it's oddly childhood, it's oddly similar to his. I had a teacher named Mr. Randon, and he was uh, a veteran. He was Navy guy, and he was at Pearl Harbor. So on the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, he's telling us about how his ship was bombed, how he woke up in the water covered in shrapnel. You know, he finds his best friend dead, and then he shows us his dog tags around his neck. You know, and it's it's interesting because they had the same thing. We had the teacher of the class was upset because we didn't get taught the curriculum that day. But that that honesty of that situation in real life and, and what, you know, what that person's gone through and what it meant to him, I, it really changed who I was as a person. It's something I still think about to this day. So I love that he's he's sharing a story that, you know, so changed his life. It's It's going to do that for other people, too. It's wonderful. Absolutely. Uh, big thanks to Leon for coming on the show. Big thanks to Adam for helping me do this. Well, Grandma's off gallivanting or absent without leave, whatever you want to call it. And uh, yeah, awesome. Check out uh, Leon's stuff. Get the book. Check out uh, social media stuff. While you're on the internet, maybe you could head over to grimeerica.ca slash support. Sign up for support today. Uh, of course, we are 100% listener supported. And we love you guys for supporting us. Um and do all the stuff in the news in the show notes. There's a bunch of different things to do in the show notes. Do all that stuff. Other than that, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Your worries